vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host will never and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight, buddy? Oh, I am, I'm doing much better than you, Matt. You poor, poor son of a bitch. In yeah. COVID isolation. Three years and four shots and I still got it. But I am in a basement studio apartment that is in my parents' house away from my still negative testing wife. She remains the last one standing in the family who has not gotten it. And, well, and Bess. As far as I know, Bess has not had COVID, but who knows? Do cats get COVID? I wonder. Uh, You know what? I think they actually, the big cats can. Yes. I I don't know about house cats. Well, as far as I know, she's fine. So I am here in isolation and at a point where all I really have is a lousy head cold. So I'll be a little scratchier tonight, but I am here because I love you all and you need your bat chat. Doing a Batman podcast in your parents' basement. This uh, this seems like how things were always going to end, Matt. In the immortal words of Abe Simpson, I'm a living joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. but you know what? I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good because uh, as always, we are recording in the distant past from when you're going to hear this. Uh, I am taking a bunch of students from an HBCU, uh, about 80 students, to see Black Panther tomorrow. Nice. And that should be a heck of a good time. I'm really looking forward to that. I had my tickets for tomorrow night. That is not going to happen. Duh. But fortunately, I do the AMC A-list thing where, you know, pay $25 a month, you can see up to three movies a week, just walk on in, and... Those can just go right back on. I don't lose no harm, no foul. So I'll just be able to go again next week. Hey, it's like movie pass, but it's not going to go out of business. Yeah. Hey, I've, I've had it for a couple of years now and it's worked real well for me. I saw seven movies last month. Didn't get COVID going any of those. <laughs> uh, let's do a show, man. Yeah. Uh, and because we're doing a show, we got a guest. Our guest. Good friend of the show and Dick Grayson backer, Josh Wheel is back. And Josh's request, we're talking Batman and Young Justice tonight. How's it going, Josh? Going well. Feel feel better than you. I'm so sorry to hear that the Rona got you. It, it gets everyone eventually, I feel like. that That's pretty much what we've been saying. We, we were super safe and... Uh, managed to, you know, keep everyone healthy for two and a half years. And then we agreed to go to Christmas uh, with masks last year. And, in you know, as per annual tradition, my family tried to kill us all. So we, we spent uh, the rest of Christmas break in early January in COVID quarantine last year. You see, I credit my boosted immune system because I French kiss every person I see on the street. I'll have to try that. Might do it? Yeah, you should give it a shot. I'll add that to the, the health regimen when I'm back to, you know, walking. Hey, I walk five miles a day. I walk past plenty of people. So I'll either be very popular or get punched in the face a whole lot. <laughs> so let's start tonight with the first story because 
that's how one starts things. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've got much in the way of COVID brain fog, but I am tired, so I might be a little less coherent than usual tonight. We'll find out. Our first story tonight is what I'm calling Young Justice Origins. This is Young Justice Volume 1, numbers 1 to 6. The writer is Peter David, pencils by Todd Nock, inks by Larry Strucker, colors by Jason Wright and Digital Chameleon, letters by Ken Lopez, and edited by Eddie Berganza. Cover dates are September and October of 1998 and December of 98 through March of 99. A new team of young heroes is formed as a new generation of sidekicks form Young Justice, whether the JLA like it or not. Uh, so we will start off with the first of a couple of uh, problematic creator watches tonight. Definite problematic creator watch on editor Eddie Berganza, known sexual harasser, and uh, also to writer Peter David, who, who has made some really unpleasant anti-Romany statements at one point or another. And as we'll see, has some other issues that we'll run across in here. Peter David. Peter David, though, we can't talk about Peter David without mentioning author of the greatest Star Trek novel of all time. Unquestionable. Now, which because there's, a, I mean, he's wrote he wrote a few. He's written words. a lot. Yes, he's written a lot. But there is there's Imzadi and there's yeah. everything else. I was gonna say it's people would say probably Imzadi or Vendetta. But yeah, Imzadi is my favorite of his bunch. I mean, it, it's got the Guardian of Forever. It's the story of. Troy and Riker. It's got a scene where a uh, Riker from the future comes back in time and embarrasses Reg Barkley. I mean, come on. It's so good. And, you know, I got to say, I was a, and I, I was a very, very, very big fan of Peter David for a lot of years. And there are multiple Peter Davids, it feels like. And, and we see a little bit of both of them in this, at least two of them in this. You have the Peter David who just has never met a bit of wordplay that he didn't want to use. And you have a more dark Peter David as well. And you get that in issues four and five while the first... Oh, yeah. Two, oh, 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 yes. The first two are very much the Peter David who has not ever met a joke he did not want to make tonight is uh gonna be very exhausting in uh in some stretches looking at uh peter david and joe kelly though oh yeah yeah um joke. so for the for the record this this episode this entire triptych is 75 dollars and the least amount of batman you'll have in any episode just so that way i could force y'all to talk about impulse issue 50 That's it. <laughs> everything else is everything else is built around that hey uh impulse 50 was uh was some good shit that we're gonna talk about yeah oh i enjoyed that by far the the best <laughs> of the three by leaps and bounds and yeah we'll we'll get to that that we'll get to that roger but so, Will, how have you read a lot of Peter David or any Peter David going into this? I've read his uh, film adaptations, the Star Trek comics he did. I remember I specifically read the one he did for Undiscovered Country. That might have been just about it I've read of his work. Oh, yeah. you're You're getting thrown into the deep end on this one. 
So there's yeah. a lot of Peter David. And I, I do like Peter David. And I've met him a number of times when he's come down here from Megacon. Overall, like, I mean, he, he comes off as a very genuine dude. I've enjoyed speaking with him. Um, I think that especially in the 90s, he definitely fell into the trap of well-meaning white guy too many times. But he's done some long runs. He had a, a long Aquaman run. He had a, a long Supergirl run, which I love. The Linda Danvers Supergirl run, um, I'm a big fan of. He did a million issues of X Factor um, that kind of ebb and flow, go up and down in terms of quality. But uh, one of the things is, you know, he he takes some big swings sometimes and it works in the moment. Um, but there's definitely a couple Peter David runs where when you try to explain them to people, like you feel a little ridiculous, like about why it was no, 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 no. There were seven other Atlantises and they were floating alien cities. And it like, I swear to God, it made sense. And it was cool at the time. Like it. it... Oh, I've got to, And let's not forget his 130 ish issue run on the Hulk. The definitive Hulk run for a long time, and still, according to many, the definitive Hulk run, either that or Greg Pak. But yeah, uh, I mean, the opening. Al Ewing would like a word. Ah, very true, very true. Actually, Al Ewing might be the 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 reigning champion right now. That is a friggin' impressive run. But the the opening of the first issue of this sees the three male members of Young Justice. We don't get the girls until halfway through this. The three boys, each of them are having a nightmare. And each of those nightmares is a reference to one of the other titles David was working on at the time. The Robin yes. Page is an, yep, the Robin Page is an Aquaman riff. The Superboy Page is a Supergirl riff. And the Impulse Page is a Hulk riff. Yes, I have that in here. The, um, you know, this is my, I don't know, my third or my fourth time reading these. And I think at some point, some of the initial charm and just how much this meant to me, like when Young Justice One came out, like when I was 14, like how much I loved this and it meant to me in the time has kind of worn off a little. But the opening pages being like Peter David kind of picking on himself and like, um, you know, mocking some of his own runs. Uh, was something that went way over my head as a kid that now I could just really enjoy it and have a, a good, probably the most genuine laugh, like the most well-earned laugh of the six issues. 14, you were the target audience for this book. <laughs> Not only was I the target audience at 14, but I was a couple years earlier when I was in sixth grade, I think my mother and my grandfather opened up a bagel shop down here and it turned out to be like three doors down from the LCS. And so even while they were like doing the pre-opening and construction and getting everything set up, like I was in the comic shop like eight hours a day, like I was there all the time and being, you know, a hyperactive little sixth grader. Like the first thing the guy that worked in the evenings, you know, the college student who worked there in the evenings did was he took like the most recent issue of Impulse, which was number eight, the Underworld Unleashed High. And he put him in and he's like, this is you like you need to read this. And my little like 12 year old self had never related so hard or 11, whatever it was like, had never related so hard to a character. And then he started showing me others. And so my initial first time subscribing in an LCS 
my subscription was Impulse, Robin, Superboy, and Generation X. So when this came out, like this was the heart. It was like, oh my God, like the three, they're all together finally in one. This was everything, you know, junior high Josh had been dreaming of and waiting for. David does the whole id, ego, and super ego thing with the three of them. And while it makes sense, it's also pretty on the head. I mean, it makes sense with the personalities of the characters, absolutely. But Peter David and the subtext are not usually things that go hand in hand when he's in his jokier moods. Not much subtlety going on here. No, he made the subtext text there. But I do I do appreciate that Superboy was all pissed off that Robin got to be super ego when adamant that he should have been super ego. He's super after all. One thing that you'll you'll see when you go back and read Peter David is while much of his work can age okay thematically, he is thoroughly entrenched in the pop culture of his moment and Hanson sucks. Yeah. Hanson sucks. Isn't that funny? Isn't that fucking hilarious? Ragging on Hanson. The Hanson joke, the Ali Ben Stein jokes. Hanson jokes. And anyone? Yeah. Anyone? Because I mean, nothing was more topical than a, a Ferris Bueller joke in 1998. I mean, if you're going to do a Ben Stein joke at that point, you do a Win Ben Stein's money joke at least. With baby Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, wow. There is an undercurrent in a bunch of this of a degree of misogyny that comes from David at this point having recently been divorced in a very acrimonious divorce. Like, he talked about his wife just walked out, emptied their bank account and walked out on. Him. That's what he says. I mean, again, any divorce is a he, sh- he said, she said scenario. But he was very displeased. And so there are a lot of jokes in here that are at the expense of female characters that are very uncomfortable. Dan DeDeo must love this run then. Yeah. Oh, boy. But. Dan DiDeo, notorious for, um, after his fifth divorce, coming out and announcing that superheroes should never be married and all DC superheroes would be getting a divorce or the new status quo would be that they're not married. Yep. New 52. Let's take the single most substantive change to the Superman mythos in 50 years and throw it out. And then we learn that, oh, right, Superman is more interesting with Lois. But, but. We'll get to that when we talk about more New 52 stuff someday. But yeah, I mean, the the first issue alone has the mighty endowed, which is just a terrible pun to begin with. And catering to the lowest possible, again, 14-year-old denominator on that one. But let's give credit to Todd Nock, who I love. I'm a big Todd Nock fan, and he was such the perfect artist for this. He is so perfectly cartoony. It was... uh, just a terrific balance for this book. And even though Peter David tried putting like the biggest pair of boobies that, you know, you could fit into a comic code approved book, Todd Nock, 
very generously and very un-90s like this is the 90s very un-90s like made sure that they were always behind you know some too much smoke or you know there was they were not going to be shown in panel so kudos to him and that character never appeared again until the recent dark crisis young justice series which takes david to task for things like that from this run so that i'm kind of glad that that character kind of faded from existence because there was no way for that character to ever work i'm looking forward to reading that new run i have it here in our living room alexander has been loving it he has been tearing through the dark crisis young justice but i haven't uh pulled it into my stack yet i just want to highlight uh mighty endowed here as a character in that she is some kind of archaeologist cursed by something transformed into this evil vixen with very large boobies they are so large in fact that she promptly falls flat on her face and i would just like to say that this is one of the goddamn dumbest things i have ever read in a comic and i hate it it's one of those ones where it's like is that trying to be commentary because it goes so far beyond commentary to the point that it is self-parody or it, it it's yeah i just, I, can't, I don't know if i have if there's the phrase for trying to parody something so much that you become the apotheosis of that thing but it's it's not great the one thing i like about it and it's not that it is the surrounding reactions i love how pitch perfect the reactions of the three boys are with robin basically like trying to look away respectfully by just absolutely staring unabashedly and impulse having no idea that there is anything um that he's supposed to be looking at is perfectly on cue for the three of them you can't say that peter david doesn't know who these characters are at least the three boys Wonder Woman in the 90s is something of a blank spot for me. So I don't have the reference for who Wonder Girl was before this run. This was my first exposure to that character. So I can't tell exactly how much he hit that character from the Byrne run. But knowing John Byrne, I can't imagine that he he was Bill that far. Lobes and then... John Byrne had her. She was a pretty personalityless character. Um, the most exciting thing from that era was the introduction of Artemis, when you really go back and look at it. And that was more about Artemis actually, you know, having personality and attitude than Diana. It's weird. See- Turns out these like middle-aged um white men didn't know how to uh write female characters with, you know, any sort of personality or agency was who to thunk it yeah stunning there's one panel though that makes that the mighty endowed stuff look enlightened and it is the one thing that is absolutely out of character impulse if you don't know out there never thought in word bubbles because he's impulse because everything is so instantaneous his thought bubbles are always just little cartoons which is neat, and it works well for the character. But at one point, Cassie, Wonder Girl, loses her temper at him, and the next thought bubble is her 
as a female dog in his head. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's no. Not only is that a something you would never say or think, it's tremendously out of character for Bart. Tremendously out of character for Bart. And that is Peter David's anger at women at this point in his life really coming through. Bart would never. No. It's not so a not a boy from Manchester, Alabama. Yes, I, I saw that. Yeah, that Bart, when he comes to the present from the future, moves down to Alabama where, you know, life is slower to try to get him to settle down. <laughs> uh, Manchester, to my knowledge, does not exist, by the way. Ah, okay. I was curious about that. As I was saying before, that the first three issues of this are real jokey. It's the mighty endowed. It's the Ali Ben Stein, which at least does not go as hard into the stereotypes and things as I was worried it was when I got to those first pages of like, oh, I don't remember this. And oh, this this can't be good. But it was fairly benign. And then a mixy story. But then you take a hard swerve with issues four and five where you meet Harm who becomes one of Young Justice's main threats throughout the series. And it is a dark friggin' story. The other thing here is that there's a lot left out because the publishing on this was wild. So after issue two, you had the one million jump, which didn't feature any of them. It featured kind of weird futuristic versions versions of them so they were during dc 1 million which i'm a big fan of i think it's very underrated fun grant morrison one line wide there were ones that had kind of the characters the main characters interacting with characters from 1 million or with this future and then there were just like weird kind of future tangents like the inspired by stories and the young justice 1 million was absolutely like an inspired by had nothing to do with these characters so in between issues two and three, don't need to read it. But then when you start issue four, you have to have read the Young Justice, the secret one shot that came out in this group of one shots that all came filled a, a fifth Wednesday shipping thing that were all female centric, female character based. Otherwise, you have no idea what's going on in issue four. And then in between four and five, you have to have read the Young Justice secret files giant that came out as well to get one of the stories in there that fills in in between otherwise you don't it is like serialized hard go it is carrying on as if you've read those early on in the series without yeah so i I was even noticing since we were only covering one through six here like for that major harm story like we only had like half of it in here even though we had so much comic i will say to dc's credit all of that stuff is collected in the Young Justice Book One trade, which is what I was working from. So I skipped over a lot of stuff. Yeah, and you probably also had uh, World Without a Justice League, the the two prestiges that led into it. Yeah, I, I started reading that, and I liked it a lot better. That's Todd Zago, who we will get to in a few minutes for Impulse. But yeah, the harm stuff is so dark. I mean, harm is a seriously fucked up character. He is this teen sociopath who is 
an unrepentant monster and you learn as you learn more about him later he's so much worse one of the things i love about this book is that it's an all ages comic it is in your main dc universe it's it's all ages and unfortunately like peter david tries to do that like worst type of kids family movie where like he makes like the inappropriate jokes that adults will get but try to be like over the kid's head a couple times and but then you have this then you have this holy shit moment where we see the villain's father just like cold-blooded murder his teenage son so spoiler for a 34 year old comic or a 24 year old comic just gun violence just shoot his son and presumably murder him here which like there is so much that is fucked about that scene and in a book aimed at at kids and 14 year olds like me just looking at it now as an adult like in a world in, a, in an America that is run rampant with gun violence now, um, like Jesus Christ, it is a fucking choice. Not to mention, like, I mean, this is the part that we could really go deep on in terms of morally, like the pragmatic response versus like the failures of like, like that is a a deep, hard, dark kind of fucked up place for the book that had, you know, big cartoonish knockers and Mixie's Pedelec on Halloween in the first three issues. And you follow it up with not as fucked up, but the, the hints of what's going on with secret and the abyss within her, which is a whole other level of dark. And eventually the ties between harm and secret, which is possibly even more fucked up than the, whatever the opposite of patricide is. Philias, Philicide. Is that it? Fraternicide? Fraternicide, that might be it. Sororicide? Trying to remember which one. No, he killed. He, but he, father killing son is, harm is a sororicide, yes. Yeah. Because he kills his sister. But father killing son, I think, is filicide. We're going to say he was a little baby and it was infanticide. But no, the, the abyss inside of her that we see kind of revealed, you know, that we start to see glimpses of here is you know that subtext is hard again um the result of you know her abuse and from her brother peter david tries to strike this balance here and it does not work at times the sixth issue is probably the most balanced with both a a threat that is threatening but also it's an action story. It's got a little less of the portentousness, a lot less of the portentousness in those previous two issues, but not as much of the juvenile humor as the first three. Yeah, this is also our, our lone appearance of the Batman for, you know, his his 22nd cameo here. Um, so that way we could get this onto the show. Yeah, because the League shows up and it's like, you kids are... You know, we, we need to talk because you boys are acting far more juvenile when you're together than when you're apart, which is clearly meta commentary on the mandate of this book. That while Impulse was somewhat of a YA book, 
Robin and Superboy were more traditional superhero comics. Still probably skewing a little younger, but were much more in line with the DC universe. And this is a much lighter book than either of those. Impulse and Robin were geared towards younger, but Robin also made sure Robin was in Gotham City. Robin was a bat title tied in with the Batman books. It was, you know, your Denny O'Neill, very cohesive Batman world of the 90s, but easier access for kids. Impulse was, as far as I'm concerned, an all ages book and with some of the creative teams on it more or less. Superboy was less. And as we'll see, you know, Superboy... Superboy had a lot of sex. Superboy had a lot of, you know, Superboy was made for like 16 and 17 year old, like horny teenage boys. Um, He had a leather coat and an earring and got lots and lots of strange. So it was less, less for the children. Yeah. And you get, I mean, you get some interesting stuff with Red Tornado here, dealing with his, his daughter and his family, like really developing a character that DC had really shuffled off the side for quite a number of years before this. And, have... and this is one of the few things that they can carried over into the young justice TV show in the early seasons as well. Um, and then held up and, and worked 15 years later in that too. There is an episode of that show feature one episode featuring secret and harm that was not unsurprisingly written by Peter David. There's a, I mean, there's a, also Something you get here that you got a lot in the 90s, even though this is an all ages book, there's some real deep DCU lore here with the super cycle and the references to New Genesis that that is a new gods thing that has to do with the forever people. And so we get hints of that that will all pay off. Peter David never wrote a book that he did not have what felt like a five year plan for. And was always seeding stuff early on that would pay off later. Some of the stuff with Secret doesn't pay off until the very end of the series. They wrap literally the final issue of Young Justice, issue 53, is when all of that wraps up. Like it it comes and goes in terms of how much it's addressed, but no, that was those were the bookends. Secret was the bookend to the start of this. Because I believe the Young Justice Secret came out before Young Justice issue one on the publication date, um, even though it, it fit in between issues three and four. And then, yeah, so we start her story before issue one and we finish it in the final issue 53. Yep. And he introduces the delightfully in quotes, punny named fighting mad here. Fight. And Fight's daughter will become a member of the team later on, Empress. So I would not be surprised if that was seeded, if he had that character in mind, even when he was creating this story. Little things to give him credit for. We'll find some of them. I I like what he was able to kind of do building in with the girls as he started here. You know, they don't come until issue four, but... You know, you do get some natural. I think it had been hinted before that Cassie had a crush on Superboy, but naturally Superboy is going to like Arouette, um, you know, Sissy from the Impulse comics, who was always a great one that she's like this, this model. Uh, she's one of those um, 
she's a child model with a, a pageant mom, a, a horrific pageant mom who shows up, I think, shortly after issue six in this series. And so naturally, like, Superboy is attracted to her. But, like, the girls are able to kind of find a little space to, like, be friends outside of the boys. Like, it gets, like, one... There's one panel in here that could pass the Bechdel test, I think. And also, you know, he does... Because he's willing to try different things. Peter David can't say he isn't. Um, What he does with the timing, using the time mechanism to... You know, they have 22 minutes, which, you know, in the 90s, every book was a 22-page comic. You know, it'd be a couple more years before they replace those last two pages with ads. So, you know, the 22 minutes and going kind of back and forth in the time, but using the time markers to, to help keep it straight was he worked a narrative device into, you know, kind of be able to to play with some nonlinear storytelling in a way that worked. Yeah, I mean, that that was a good little device. It's am, also I reaching? A... am I, am I reaching? No, for... no, I agree. I think that that was... That was definitely a neat little thing. I mean, again, I think issue six is by far the best issue of the the six that we read. There's also they, they save the Pope, which okay, Peter David, JP two. I do like the because uh, you know there's a lot of the throwaway one liners, but um, you know when they nab their first villain um, and she's being hauled off by the police, she goes, "I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids." I, I got a chuckle. It's a Scooby-Doo reference, and I, I'm all about a Scooby-Doo reference. Loves me some Scoob. As you, but the in joke was appropriate for the target audience. Like that is true. We are no longer the target audience for this book, but all the other in jokes were not appropriate for the target audience. That is also very true. I am not here, however, for this uh, this joking about Batman sixty six. I knew was not that a one. fan. I knew that one. Not yeah. a fan. Yeah, I knew you would not have liked that one, Will. And and again, that Fuck was off. aimed at that audience because NPR's comic book critic, Glenn Weldon, who wrote the an excellent book, uh, The Caped Crusade, Batman in Pop Culture, said that, and I'm not going to get this quote exactly right, but he said this in an article that not in that book, but I think he might say it in the book as well. The relationship that most people have to Batman 66 follows the general evolution of how you are as a person. When you're young, you love this thing because it's big and it's bright and it's fun. Then when you become a teenager and a 20-something, it's like, oh, this is dumb because it's big and it's light and it's dumb and it's fun. And then when you become an adult and you don't take yourself so friggin' seriously, you then can appreciate it for what it is. And again, I feel like David was writing at a particular audience that would not have wanted Batman 66 to be what it is because comics had to be serious in the late 90s. But this wasn't serious at all. Very true. Do this we... this was an irritating read. Very, very irritating. Do we have anything else? I enjoyed this a lot more when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> same. I believe, right? I can't swear to this, but I think this is going to be the only appearance of John Paul II on the show. Probably. I know we still have Reagan and Gorbachev coming up at some point. Oh, and uh, 
reading Rob as a nickname just like made me want to die inside. I'm trying to think how much else Peter David has not written a ton of Batman. There, there's some other Young Justice appearances. He might pop up in some of his Supergirl or Aquaman, but not a lot. Batman's a little too straight-laced for Peter David. He can't quite make the jokes he wants with Batman as a central character, so you don't get a lot of Peter David. I also think DC wasn't necessarily let it want to let Peter David, who he was never an A-list writer. As good as his stuff was, he never, other than Spider-Man, he never wrote a marquee character. He, I'll wait because I'm running through them all in my brain. And I, I know his marquiest thing they let him do or had him do. He did two of the four issues of Marvel versus DC. Very true. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll be reading that at some point. Because a very good Batman Captain America fight. If yes. you haven't read it yet, Will. And a great moment with Batman and Daredevil. Uh, not Daredevil, uh, Bullseye. Well, I do believe that means it's time to put Young Justice Origins on the big board. All right. We are at 186 stories on the big board. Number one is still Batman Year One from uh, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number thirty is Sleigh Ride, where Joker takes Tim Drake on a Christmas ride through Gotham. Number sixty is Blood Secrets, where Batman returns to Alabama once a year to torment a guy who he couldn't get locked up. That was us. We did that one just there to fuck with a guy. And coming in number sixty-nine, it's Batman Adventures number twenty-five, Super Friends. Down at number 90 is Execution 2001, the Armageddon 2001 Superman Annual. At 120 is The Brave and the Mold, the Batman Swamp Thing team-up by Tom King. At 150 is The Delta Connection, another Batman and Swamp Thing team-up. And then down at the bottom at 186, oh, guess what? It's still Batman White Knight. As it should be. So we're looking... Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I I had a range picked out for this. Okay. okay. So it is below Blades and above Dark Knight, a true Batman story. So I'm thinking between 118 and 135. Uh, I agree on both of those. Absolutely. Yes. I because it's, it's not as good as Blades, and I didn't absolutely fucking detest it like I did uh, Dark Knight. Another wacky story is 129, Mad Men Across the Water, the Arkham Inmates Blackgate baseball game. I like that more. That's that's Oh, more, I sure do. More fun. I would have said this was better before the reread this week, but I, I, I have... I changed. I, I I wouldn't put it above Mad well, Men across the water now. The comedy is just inherent. Oh, let's let's just have a, a baseball game with the Arkham inmates. Sure, uh, nothing bad's gonna happen with that. This tries so fucking hard. Not as hard as the next story, but just just like the Hanson jokes are just again, it's an exhausting read. I think it might. We 
a little less arduous than Batman Harley Quinn at episode 52 issue. Yeah. at Yeah. From episode 52, number 133, when they pull Harley into the DC universe and tie it so intrinsically into no man's land that it's kind of impenetrable. I would recommend this to people as a like, oh, Young Justice or these characters or check out like I would recommend this before I would recommend that for like a oh, you like Harley go back and read thing. But it's not a monkey astronaut. No, no. And and I do want to point out like the collected volume, I think as a whole is better than these six stories. Uh, these six issues. Um, what what was the what was the first one you mentioned, Matt? Uh, uh, World, World without with, a Justice League. World without grownups. World without grownups. That's what. It is. Yeah, that that was a really interesting story. Uh, both for like the Lord of the Flies aspect and a these characters were in a much more serious situation. And I was I was kind of pressed for time in my readings, so I put that aside to get to these other six. And I was like, man, I wish I would just just finished that other one. Okay, so we're now in between 129 and 133 so we're we're real narrow i'm I'm thinking actually 131 digital justice there's a monkey astronaut if there ever was one yeah absolutely um so the new 132 unless uh, you got any real love for shadow box no i think 132 all right our second story of the night is first fools this is Impulse number 50. The writer is Todd DeZago with pencils by, by Ethan Von Skyver, inks by Prentice Rollins, colors by Rick Taylor and Digital Chameleon, letters by Janice Chang, and edited by L.A. Williams. The cover date is July of 1999. Impulse learns about April Fool's Day and runs to Gotham to get some supplies for pranks at a novelty warehouse. But the warehouse is in the middle of a hostage situation with the Joker. Can Impulse help Batman save the innocents and capture the Joker? Ah, uh, okay. So, Woo! yeah, big time. The the biggest of the problematic creator watches. There's only the- one problematic creator watch worse than this, and I, I'm pretty sure I heard you say once that you refuse to cover him on the show. So this might be the biggest one you guys do. Yeah, yeah. This guy is not in the uh, custody of uh, federal officials at the moment. Right. He's just, Ethan Van Skyver is the poster child for Comicsgate. He is a vile piece of shit and shops at the same comic shop I do. And fortunately is very rarely in the store at the same time I am because the couple times he has, it has taken all of my self-control to not say it. But yes, he is an absolutely atrocious human being. Then real quick, let's get out of the way. The one nice thing I want to say about him, because he honestly did a really great job on the art in this issue, which like that's why he was so fucking famous for a while, even though he's a horrible fucking piece of shit, garbage human being. Oh, yeah. And um, his stuff it's was such a great balance. It's such a great balance between dark Gotham and light impulse. It's it's fucking good. God damn him. Oh, and it's like I like this more than I like his later stuff quite a bit. I think this is some of his best work. He is Sadly, one of the first artists I have in my Batman sketchbook, because, you know, that was before we all knew what a monster he was. That was 2011. But yeah, this is 
a real fun little story. This is what it was on the tin there. Impulse learns about April Fool's Day and is like, hey, wait, I can prank people and not get in trouble today? Oh, I'm going to get Robin good. I, I think, though, you're burying the lead. This has some fantastic Joker moments. Just absolutely fantastic. Like a good blend of Joker as comedian, Joker as homicidal maniac, Joker as being a wild agent of chaos. Like this is some of the my favorite Joker material that I've ever read. You like, didn't say he does Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you gotta say you know over over. You know, uh, I just that was some really good stuff. And how put upon he gets because of impulse by the end. How frustrating impulse is to the Joker. The Joker is not used to there being anyone who is as frustratingly random as he is. Stop that... playing with the chattering teeth. <laughs> it's great. This is a, a running theme in Dezago's impulse is like serious characters or villains, like just being so fucking done with impulse. There's a really, really funny, I think probably the funniest issue of the whole run is one where the Riddler is the villain. And this scene that makes me lose it every fucking time is where Impulse get, keeps getting confused because he thinks he's the uh, the question. Oh, that's good. You got the question marks all over your suit, man. It's like, you're not wearing your mask. I thought I thought you were all about, like, finding the truth. I thought you were friends with Batman. What, like, and finally Riddler figures it out. Like, I'm not the question, goddammit. That's great. Oh, it's been a while since I read this run. I need to go back and read. After reading this, like, I need to go back and reread this run. But yeah, he does the same thing. Like, Joker thinks it's going to be funny to force Batman to work with Impulse. And, you know, about six pages later, he's regretting it. And the thing is, Bart follows the instructions. Bart is not a complete random wacko or wacky here. He knows that he needs to take this at least seriously. And that's good. Bart is random, but Bart is deeply empathetic. And that was the best of, you know, and, and Mark Wade, who why this is in Alabama, who created this character and started this book um, with Humberto Ramos, another in the Todd Knock line of fantastic cartoony style artist. You know, he is a he is a genuine he's innocent. He you know, he is in this teenager's body, but he's three years old. So, you know, in a lot of ways, he's this he's baby Groot. You know, he's, you know, running around, ah, I'm going to fight. And then like, I'm going to crawl in your lap and go to sleep. Like he's, he's doing his best and truly doesn't understand. It's, it's why I love the moment of, you know, him not getting at all why everyone was staring at the mighty endowed in young justice. Number one, like, cause that's, that's Bart. He's, you know, he is a, a sweet, good boy. Yeah. And, you know, you get that in here, like even with the Joker, like the it's just too good for the Joker. Like the Joker can't take that. Bart won't give him a straight line. And that's what Joker revels in. He wants he wants someone who he can play off of. And Bart's too oblivious for the Joker to play off of. And I, I have to say, I rather enjoyed that the Joker's henchmen are wearing uh, Marx Brothers masks. You get Bart peeking through as, you know, 
the hero, the kind of like surprising Batman with the extra, you know, while he's running around at light speed doing all of Joker's errands that, you know, he drops off this hastily scribbled map of where all the goons are to Batman. And it's a combination of, okay, like he managed to slip subvert, give Batman what he needs to to win and, and, you know, be the sidekick for Batman, but also just fucking adorable the way they draw the hastily scribbled map with the arrows to where the goons are like like those are the things that made this book so good even even the issues that i've you know when i've gone back and reread them as an adult um you know for me the majority of this run of yeah i think it's 80 82 88 issues of impulse hold up really well for me and the comedy here is so much better as compared to the last story and especially the next story, the the background gags of what impulse you know goes and fetches Elvis Presley's coffin, a life preserver from the Titanic, a, a uh, dinosaur skull. Yeah. Oh, and then leaves a IOU dinosaur skull note behind, a Funkin' Go Nuts Dunkin' Donuts sign. I mean, just simple little jokes that don't try too hard and that aren't as i've said exhausting so i really enjoyed this just a fun fun little read and we're in a we're in the era where jason todd's death still weighs so heavily on batman because both bruce doesn't want impulse involved because of his concern that he'll lead another child to his death And Joker himself says it. There have been a few stories that have dealt with Bruce reckoning with Jason being alive again. We've never seen the Joker reckon with that. And I don't know if that's too serious a story to do with the Joker. Or too, again, straight a story to do with the Joker. But it would be fascinating to get inside his head and see what his now that his greatest triumph has been taken away from him because that Robin is alive again, what that means to him. And maybe we'll get that in the Rosenberg Joker now that Jason is in there. But that's what I was thinking. Like that would be the perfect place to explore that. And as we've talked about in the print column, it would be more interesting if we could do that without this weird doppeljoker stuff going on. But that's another discussion. I mean, you mentioned it before, Josh, but this is this is still the 99. So Denny O'Neill is still running the bat offices, even though this is during the NML. This is set pre cataclysm Mm -hmm. and you get that cohesive Gotham because there's a brief reference when Gordon is set up out in front of the warehouse. He's talking to Bill Pettit the SWAT captain who becomes the warlord in the no man's land in here. And it's like, there aren't any other GCPD officers nowadays, other than, you know, Bullock and Montoya, who everybody knows. We don't have that deep bench of characters in the bat family anymore. And I miss that. Even after this, you still had Gotham central. And I wish we just saw driver and josie mack show up again recently and it's like i would love to start seeing more gotham characters that aren't vigilantes showing up in the bat titles currently yeah i mean gotham is of any setting 
in the DC universe, you know, Gotham is the most that is its own character. I mean, Gotham is its own living city. It has so many different characters and things that it brings. It's it's a place that you cannot change out with anywhere else. You know, a Metropolis story could take place in, in Keystone City, but a Gotham story can only take place in Gotham. They've tried to make Metropolis more distinct by making it the city of the future, but it never lasts. It always sort of reverts. And the cities that you might be able to do a Gotham type story in are so clearly riffs on Gotham, Hub City and Bluthaven are very much just, okay, these are stories that Bat writers wrote in other cities. This is Denny O'Neill and Chuck Dixon who created them. So it's like, yeah, okay. Anytime you try to create a city that's worse than Gotham, it's just a pale imitation of Gotham. This is a delightful Joker. This is the kind of Joker that I wish we would get more of nowadays. There's just so much Heath Ledger in the Joker now. And I love Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. But that and Grant Morrison's random, you know, shifting man Joker are now the defining characteristics of that character. He's not that funny anymore. And he's still a clown. No, this this hits on a lot. This is a much, much better Joker than for me. You know, the I think Scott Snyder's was one of them that I just found too exhausting. The the and Jeff Johns does it too, the the God Joker, the Joker that is a million steps ahead and is a super chess player and has planned everything out and has, you know, he's everywhere and has uh, a horrible, you know, evil thing waiting for you every turn you make. They were just too much. This is great. This is a a maniac just at play. Yeah, in probably the the best way for the comics. He's not outsmarting Batman or anything every turn. He's just like, I got a hostage, so fuck you. You're going to stay out there. You're so smart, but I have a hostage. So ha! Absolutely. I love a Joker who is frustratable. That Snyder Joker is so far beyond that he he doesn't get that way. This Joker is still human. And it's the same problem you get with Batman at times, that Batman has to be grounded. Batman has to be human. Batman has to be fallible. Or what's the point in him being Batman? He's not Batman anymore when he's a god. And I love Joker's plan here too. It's like, oh yeah, I just disconnected the sprinkler system and hooked it up to some Joker venom. So, oops. Whoopsie. And Batman figured out, and Bart even noticed it. I was like, that's a great little thing. It's very easy to write Bart as, pardon the pun on this one, slow. But he's not. He's not dumb. He's just random. Yeah, exactly. He's ADHD incarnate. When he's firing on all cylinders, it's like, okay, he's a smart kid. And he absolutely sees that thing and maybe doesn't figure out exactly what it means, but he notices the clue, the same clue that Batman noticed. Does anybody have anything else? I think that Batman grabbing him by the hair is a bit of a sour note. 
that is a running gag in here about his hair. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't have my full run in front of me. I want to say he shaved his head before this. Yes, in the um, Mesner Lobes issues. But it was a thing where he was getting tired of people grabbing him by his hair. And, you know, because people were telling him he shouldn't have long hair because people grabbed by his hair. And then they kept doing it. And so he sh- so he's like, fine, look, I shaved my head. Now you don't have to tell me about. And Max Mercury, his uncle guardian, was like, you, f- you can't. We live in a small town in Alabama. You can't shave your head and Impulse shaves his head at the same time. Like, <laughs> and so, you know, then, then he had to run around where then he had to wear a wig, which he hated until he grew his hair back. And and so I think he had just recently grown his hair back and now he's getting his hair pulled again. Um, it was kind of a it's it's a throwback to a long stretch of Bart having this long hair, but always getting it pulled because it was a running gag. Hmm. Still seems awfully cruel of Batman. Well, if that's it. That means it's time to put impulse number 50 first fools on the big board. All right. Uh, I'm scrolling up. I'm scrolling up quite a bit. Well, we talked about uh, Mark Wade, a native Alabamian, author of Blood Secrets at 60. Where are you thinking in relation to that? It doesn't beat Blood Secret. Blood Secret is a, a very Batman story. It's it's deep. It's got some real strong themes to it. I love Harvey Harris as a mentor to Batman. I think this is still that is still stronger than this. Okay, here's a, I'm, I'm actually going to throw you a spot for this. All I'm right, throw you a spot. The new number 73 that puts it below half an evil, which is the story that despite all of our jokes about smashing and grabbing for Harvey is the story that reintroduces Two-Face into the Batman mythos, but is above Batman the Spirit, which is a story that if it were not drawn by Darwin Cook would be down considerably lower because it's stunning, but it is a huge trifle. It might be one of the highest trifles on this list. And this, this is what it should be, a, a, a highly placed trifle. Yeah, I like it. New 73. New 73 it is. Good showing for my boy Bart. And that's going to be the highest ranked story of the night. Oh, Spoiler by alert. far. By far. Our final story of the night is Silent But Deadly. Uh... This is Superboy Volume 4, number 85. The writer is Joe Kelly with pencils by Pascal Ferry, inks by Keith Champagne, colors by Jason Wright and Digital Chameleon, letters by Comicraft, and edited by Mike McCavaney. Uh, the cover date is April of 2001. Superboy stops by Gotham to have a talk with Robin, only to wind up on a case with Cassandra Kane, the new Batgirl. Yeah. Joe Kelly has one voice, and it's Deadpool. That's yep. that's the only voice he can write. That's the only thing he knows, as judging by the uh, the Elastic Man story we've done, or Plastic Man, Plastic Man, Plastic Man, somebody else. Uh, but uh, yeah, I hated this story for the same reason I hated that one. It's just zany, wordy silliness. Like this is, the, I'll, I'll read the line that opens the story. Opens it. Great Scott, little chum. My bat sense is going berserk. 
hand me the bat omnidirectional magnifying lenses. There is an evil hoochie boochie changing into her birthday suit, and I need to catch it on the bat honey cam. My opening note is, oh, Joe Kelly, every fucking character has to be Deadpool, don't they? I will add the note that anytime Joe Kelly writes superheroes, they have to sound like that. If you've ever read his I Kill Giants, it is a very different voice, but that is a very different type of book. But Joe Kelly superheroes are almost invariably way too quippy. And by the way, um, the, the Plastic Man is not the only other Joe Kelly story on here. Oh, no, oh, yeah. there's a much lower story from Joe I, Kelly. I was just going to say that. I like this less this time, having more recently read that horrible Batman Superman annual that's like in the bottom five on your list. It just, like, yeah, like it makes it, it's bringing up like feelings and resentments of like, like this is making me remember other bad cringe and it makes the tacky and misogyny bits stand out even more like putting it alongside other shitty tacky misogyny joe kelly ones yeah is is that 186 the one where it's like super uh batman says oh i've i've planted a bomb and an innocent person in gotham and if you nope. touch me oh no, boy that's that's john Byrne. that's up a little bit this is lois lane makes an eating disorder comment that makes two women ah. vomit in the bathroom and there's a bunch of gay jokes about Batman and Superman having to share a cabin. Deadpool. Slade Wilson shows up, but he's literally actually just Deadpool at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Earth three Slade Wilson shows up the, the invert, the inverted one because Earth three is where heroes are villains. Villains are heroes. And there Wilson is just Deadpool. And yes, they keep that... cutting him off before he can say his name. I'm Deadpool. Oh, or something like that every time. Truly lamentable. Yes. I had forgotten most of that. Thanks for bringing it back up. You still, you know, that was just barely beaten by Batman versus the undead. But yeah, the, the volume of misogyny here that mm -hmm. Connor, listen, when Connor was introduced, Connor was such a stereotypical teenage, you know, 16 year old guy. And I had felt like he had evolved somewhat over the course of the series to be a little, a little yeah. less like that and a little more understanding of people around him. And then but this by the time we hit the, by the time we hit the uh, Jack Kirby, like around issue 50, going back to the Island with the comedy characters like he comes back from that and he's a little less of a himbo, which he totally was at first. I oh. mean, he had he literally like the book started and it launched with him having his own Betty and Veronica. He had Roxy the Blonde and Tana the Brunette. And then the first new love interest they brought in was Knockout, who was the redhead, which they talk about subtext is hard. Like they had to make it so fucking apparent everything they could around the comics code to let you know, hitting you over the head that. He had sex like he was definitely having sex with her in a volcano like and boy, howdy, 16 year old having sex with a being from New Genesis or Apocalypse, who is, you know, probably centuries old. Yes, that's 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer rules, like you get a pass on that because they're immortal. He but... was. They were going back and forth between having him explicitly a teenager in high school, but all of his relationships were with adults. They were all adults. Tana Moon was supposed to be the lowest laid thing. She was a seasoned reporter. Yeah, no, and it's it was weird. I, I would I would like to think that that Carl Rocast Carl Castle has some regrets about some of those things. Here he's such a dick towards Cass at the beginning of this. He calls her toots. A, what 16-year-old in nineteen nine in 2001 calls anyone toots? I read this the first time a long time ago, um, and I don't think I thought too much of it then. I read it a year ago, and I liked it better than I did this time because I've since read I think that that Batman-Superman annual has added to my... I think you can't hand-wave as much after, you know, the more of them you read, like Will has with the Paul Dini... Like, you, you stop being able to hand wave it after, like, the ninth occurrence of, you know, whatever misogyny. Ah, um, yes. The Paul Dini principle strikes again. But, like, there's another three-part story after this that that has Connor and Cassie that is much better. And it takes place in the Batgirl series. But it just, like, it has, it has like, one page of Batman over three issues. And, I mean, this one with Superboy coming to Gotham is a much better pair for impulse 50 even if it's a much worse comic yeah i mean there isn't much batman here either it's two pages at the end we we were reaching just so that way we could talk about impulse 50 yeah and that was worth reading that one was it, it was, was worth, worth reading, reading. Uh, this though not worth reading I, I will also say you want to know something the the villain of this story dr sin is a character so obscure he does not even have a page on the dc wiki what yeah yeah i looked him up because i was like i don't remember where this guy comes from and i went to this issue and it was like wow he does not have a link he is a character so obscure he does not have a page on the dc wiki this might be his only appearance kelly's run lasts another few issues before is it Palmiotti comes in and finishes I think Palmiotti finishes it up yeah yeah from like the late 80s early 90s through 100 when it wraps mm-hmm. so yeah yeah it's a weird thing with the name too even though it predates it because you know and I think we talked about this last time but there is a character Sin who is you know Lady Shiva's next protege um you know who becomes a Green Arrow, Black Canary character. I think that's what we talked about it last time. Um, yes. But yeah, so like the the Ca- Cassie, Cassandra Kane with a villain named Sin. And they're like, I had to stop for a second. Like, wait, well, okay. Just timeline wise, like you're not, this predates that. So you weren't really choosing a bad name. I don't think he gets Cass particularly wrong. But this is also the point where Cass was still not as fully formed. This is very early in Cass's existence. I mean, when you think Cass would have gotten her own series cover date, probably March of 01, because we're usually two months out and she got one. uh, No, March of 2000. Okay, so it's a year in. Yeah. All right. So it's uh, she still probably had more personality there than she does here. 
I like that she would be attracted to Connor. I like that as she's kind of, you know, feeling her way or trying to be normal that, you know, he is big, dumb and easy and not complicated, you know, because she's in this world of where everything is so complicated. I, I, I like that attraction. Connor's arc in this story, and I don't even think was this. Did they call him Connor in this or are we just calling him Connor? Yeah, he he doesn't become Connor. Con. Um, yeah, co- the crypto his Kryptonian name. He He's doesn't still become Connor just... until Jeff Johns, I think, right? Right. He becomes he gets the name Connor yeah. Kent at the beginning of Teen Titans. He's just Connell. He's this SB. Point. Yeah. Or the kid. SB. He suffers from like Johnny Storm syndrome here, where, you know, Johnny Storm is, you know, a jerk and a dick and uh, a ladies' man. And then, you know, something happens and, you know, he has to, you know, kind of be real and, you know, and, 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 and admit his insecurities and, you know, kind of come over it. And then, you know, next week he's a jerk and, and you know, like where we just keep having these, we keep winding the tape back on those maturing moments or character growth. And yeah, like this has that where it's like, oh, this is the moment. But, you know, we're going to just do that every time because we want to be able to write him as Deadpool again to start next issue. Yeah. And this is such a nebulous villain plot. Like there's no real explanation as to why Dr. Sin is doing what he's doing. It's not even clear what he's doing. He's turning street demons into sodium zombie monsters and luring in heroes to experiment on them. I mean, couldn't you have just used like Scarecrow? If you wanted somebody to, you know, ex- play with the minds of heroes. Scarecrow would have been a bad choice for this. Yeah, I'm sure Kelly had plans for this character and was left the book before he could do anything with them. But I, I would love to the Superboy that we saw in, you know, Young Justice one through six, you know, that and, you know, from worthy of fighting supervillains and, you know, Robins, they're all just like normal humans and bullshit. I would love to see like that Superboy just. Okay, that was going to come out really wrong and weird. I would not love to see that teenage boy drugged by Scarecrow. But that character, like, to be taken down or just fall in and then be at the clutches of a non-powered Batman villain, that story has some juice to it, um, as opposed to, you know, this one, it's just kind of a little more random excuse to put them in a water tank. There's a... Batman Secret Files might be Batman Secret Files 1 or Batman Villain Secret Files. And there's a short in it, not the marquee story, but one of the back stories about Kyle Rayner coming to Arkham Asylum for the first time. And he's bringing the Joker back. He's got Joker in a construct straight jacket. And he's, you know, kind of like he doesn't get why Arkham is such a big deal. I mean, none of these guys have powers. And as he walks through Arkham, he gets more and more uncomfortable because despite all his powers, this place is fucked. And I think that would be what we would see with Connor here, that he, you know, is like, oh, he's just a guy in a bag on his head. Come on. And then Scarecrow puts him through the ringer would be an interesting story. That sounds much better than I would love to see this teenage boy drugged by uh, Professor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you did a better job with the words than I did. Ah. There's also one line, and it's one of these things that I wish we would come back to. When Connor is giving his heartfelt little speech at the end, 
he says to Cass, you know, something to the effect of, I wish I'd marked the specific line, and I bet you're a great dancer or something to that effect. And it wasn't until Tinian, but Tinian introduced the fact that Cass is fascinated by ballet and that she was living in the the rafters of the Gotham Ballet Theater. And I love that idea because ballet is such a physical thing. It's it's as much almost sport as it is dance because of the physicality involved very specifically in ballet. It's so perfect for Cass. The, the abuse that the dancers put on their bodies, the fact that it's a, the silent art, it's there's so much of it that just fits for her to be. There's 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 no ideas that good in this book. No, I really wish we would see a little bit of that in Batgirls. I, I love Batgirls as a book right now. It's a great book, but I would love to see Cass taking ballet lessons. Not that she needs the lessons because of her abilities. She would just mimic what she sees. But I think it would be really interesting for her to see it where she has to learn the the passion as well as the physicality. I think there'd be a really good arc for the character there. I'm kicking myself. I passed on that when it first came out. So then I was waiting for the um, waiting for the trades. And I know I, I got a message the other day that it's waiting for me at my LCS this week. Yeah. And they've just started bringing in characters from Gotham Academy, which is fun. I'm glad to see Kyle and Maps showing up somewhere else. We're, we're, we're not talking about the book too much because the book is not good. The book is like, again, you said, you know, you get that mature moment that Connor gives this sort of, not yes, Connor, Con, whatever, gives this sort of heartfelt speech, you know, to help, you know, Cass asks him to speak and that allows her to focus on his speech so she can get a lockpick out. But yeah, as you said, and that, you know, chooses to take the same punishment that Bruce is going to give to her. But, you know, as you said, it's a little issue, weird that Bruce is going to punish her. Like, yeah, the wording there is, yeah, it, it's got a little bit of that golden age Batman putting Robin across his lap and giving him a spanking vibe that does not work. And he should not have been something that was there, but at least there had societal norms to go with it here using that that particular turn of phrase is not good ah but you see here yeah, i'm not a chiseler i don't leave my friends to take my heat <sighs> spoken like any 16 year old boy and yeah there's there's a lot of hello fellow kids here hey i, I might take bob haney over this uh yeah uh i don't think i've got anything else how bad could Marvell be? Whatever that story is, that uh, that that former editor of Marvel, he wrote that all time terrible story. Oh, um, oh, Marvel. Uh, um, oh, what is his friggin' name? Jemis. Jemis. Bill Jemis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Marvel. I didn't even touch that. <laughs> uh but anyway thinking about other all-time bad stories uh i think that means it's time to both superboy number 85 toward the bottom of the big board okay it is not as bad as stop me if you've heard this one it's, it's not, not much better that is true uh where we got that that's 186 that's that superman batman annual 
Oh, <laughs> not as bad as that. I gotta put the title on that. I think Widening Gyre is better. Widening Gyre only really falls apart in the last issue. Yeah. I think it might go right below Widening Gyre because Batman versus the Undead is considerably longer and has really uncomfortable cultural appropriation and yet another character of color who has no name. So the new 185, eh? Yep. There we go. Joe Kelly's carving out a little niche for himself at the bottom of your list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He stinks. Probably won't be as as bad as the uh, Sean Gordon Murphy (laughs) spots at the bottom of the list. Sean Gordon Murphy might just have to have his own list of terrible, terrible Batman stories. That looks like it is it for the night. Josh, thank you for coming by. Where can people follow you online? You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L. Great. Follow Josh. He's a he's a good follow. Next week, fellow Comic XF writer Tony Thornley stops by to talk about intercompany crossovers in Batman, just in time for the new Batman Spawn. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come in. Josh Wheel. Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bye, two bucks. Tim Rooney and Giorgio Seragioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on Comics XF, where episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. Assuming his Twitter still up when you hear this, uh, I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.